Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Disruptive Engineers, we'll be hosting conversations with industry leaders who are working on cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, cybersecurity, green tech, artificial intelligence, and more. I'm your host, Samantha Walravens. This week's episode features Jeff Rosedale, an intellectual property and startup attorney at Baker and Hostelzor, and Pranav Gokhal, the co-founder and CEO of Supertech Labs, who holds a PhD in quantum computing from the University of Chicago. We will discuss trends in emerging technology and how engineers and entrepreneurs research, develop, and commercialize their ideas. So I'd like to start our conversation by asking each of you about your background. Jeff, you're an IP attorney. Pranav, you're an entrepreneur working on quantum computing. Can you tell us, each of you separately, tell us what inspired your interest in these fields and how you got to the place you are in your career today? I started out, you know, my career in uh, in technology. I was always a, a tech kid, studied engineering in school, ended up uh, working at uh, Bell Laboratories uh, when I got out of college. I saw some amazing things. And uh, more importantly, I worked with some amazing people. At least uh, all, people who are older, they understand Bell Labs was was like, uh, I don't know, like the Google Labs or the, you know, uh, the Amazon, the Microsoft of the 1980s when I got out of college. I mean, it was a, an amazing place to do research. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore like that. But the things that I saw, I was just amazed. And uh, I decided to go on to grad school, uh, primarily because I liked that kind of tech. After grad school, I ended up in industry, uh, worked at a chemical company in Philadelphia, uh, developing advanced materials. Back in the 90s, they were just developing color flat panel displays. I mean, all you students probably, you know, you grew up with color computers, but, you know, I grew up with, uh, with, with black and white. You know, they were grayscale. So I actually worked on the colorants early on. I was uh, attracted to intellectual property. And so I ended up, you know, mid-career. After 10 years R&D, I ended up going to law school uh, in Philadelphia. There was a program that I was able to go to mostly at night and continued to work during the day and uh, ended up getting a law degree, added that on to my doctorate. And uh, here I am, PhD, JD. And uh, that was 20 plus years ago. And I've been working on all different kinds of tech and companies ever since. Great. Thank you. We'll get into some of those technologies in a minute. But Pranav, why don't you tell us about your, your background and how you became inspired to pursue quantum computing? Yeah, sure. So I was probably in similar shoes as the students uh, in this class, say, 10 years ago or so. Um, I was really interested in technology and emerging areas of research. So I attended Princeton University, bounced a lot on majors. Initially thought I wanted to do maybe something government policy intersecting with science technology. I interned at the Federal Trade Commission and had a good experience, but also decided it wasn't right for me. It was sort of spectating and regulating innovation, which is very important, but it wasn't the same as making the innovation happen. And so I decided that computer science as a major gave some opportunities to really do things. And that's what I did. I wanted to get into sort of disruptive engineering immediately after college, but it was sort of, it's a big jump when there's a world of established technology companies out there that hire undergrads and you can have a really great career there. So after college, I went to tech startups in the Bay Area that were fairly established. Uh, one of them is Quora, the question answer website. And I really loved my time there. I got to learn software engineering, but I also felt at times that, well, this is really fun stuff, 
but it's not a zero to one kind of experience that's going to change the trajectory of basic research or future innovations. And so I had done a lot of uh, classes and coursework into quantum mechanics and computing and combining those two is quantum computing. So in 2017, I went over to uh, UChicago for grad school, a PhD in quantum computing that I just defended last September. And during the course of my PhD, my advisor and I decided to spin out our research into a company. We thought there's this interesting opportunity to do cool things with quantum computing, which I'm sure we'll talk about what that even means. But uh, it was it felt very zero to one, and I'm happy with thing, how things turned out. Uh, I certainly didn't expect 10 years ago that this is where I'd land up today. And so to the students, if you're if you don't have a concrete vision of what it's going to look like in 10 years, don't worry about it. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Jeff, I want to before we go deep into quantum computing, because I do want to dig into that with mm -hmm. Pranal, but I want to ask you, you're working with a lot of different startups who are building emerging technologies, you know, as we discussed from AI, machine learning, you mentioned augmented and virtual reality when we spoke on the phone, quantum mm -hmm. computing, blockchain. So which of these technologies are you the most excited about and where are you seeing the most momentum? The thing that I've actually been working on since last night, and I might show a little tired, I, I was up late, got up early, um, is in the, in the field of robotics. I mean, there, there's AI, there's all different kinds of robots that are out there. And to move around, they're all based upon electromotors. Well, I'm working with a, a company, a disruptive engineer, background at IBM Research, background at Stanford, a brilliant person, total genius. And I've been working with him for a number of years now basically building the artificial muscles that will allow robots to walk around like humans. Think about that for a second. That is super cool. That is super disruptive. It's really early. He's uh, you know, still uh, under the radar a little bit, but it's very exciting. I would say that that is going to be huge. So anything involving robotics and AI is absolutely huge. And uh, augmented reality, if I'm sure probably a lot of people have perhaps read the book or seen the movie Ready Player One. If you recall, it was about basically people who had fit inside of these body suits with the full virtual reality. And the body suits gives you the sense of movement and touch and pressure. And, and actually, there, there are those technologies that are being developed right now in the, uh, if you will, they call it the haptic technology, that feedback. So that um, right now there are gloves and sleeves and different kinds of devices. And if you have an Apple Watch like I do, you feel the you know, the, the tapping sensation. So it gives you a sensation of feeling. But there's a company in California that I visited called Haptics, and they are developing the Ready Player One type technology. Now, they're, they were doing gloves, very exciting, um, not full body suits yet. And they had a, a, a system with the, the glove with the virtual reality headset. It was extremely exciting. And also, there's another early stage startup, very exciting area related to virtual reality is augmented reality. Right now, people aren't too excited about that, but guess what? Apple computer is very excited. If you read all, if you read between the lines, if you read, you know, what they've been saying, if you look at their patents like I do, okay, it is entirely possible that within a five years, we won't be using iPhones anymore. We'll be using these glasses, these augmented reality glasses, and everything will be in front of you with hand gestures and eye motions, that is totally disruptive. And I'm working with a company that is anticipating that and is doing some really cool things in that field. Very interesting. Pranav, you're working on super cutting edge technology. Before we dive deeper into what Supertech is doing, I'd like you to give us a 
dummies version <laughs> of quantum computing. And to start, can you explain how quantum computers differ from classical computers, which are the machines that we're on right now that we use every day? Yeah, certainly. And I'll be 99% scientifically accurate, but it helps if I don't go 100%. So I think if I had to boil it down to one piece of what's really unique about a quantum computer, it's this really crazy phenomenon called superposition. And the way to understand it is if I flip a coin while it's in the air, you don't know if it's heads or tails, but once it lands, it's either heads or it's tails. So that's like a normal computer. It's either zero or one. In a quantum computer, you have this property of superposition where the coin is not on the ground heads or tails. It's spinning in the air in this simultaneous mixture of say a zero and a one. So what we say in quantum computers is that we don't have bits, we have qubits, which are quantum bits. And with one qubit, you can really have any combination of all zero, all one, 50-50, or anything in between. So that sounds like a gimmick for a single qubit, and it's sort of a gimmick for a single qubit. But what's really powerful is that when you have a lot of these qubits, you can represent an enormous amount of data with a small amount of qubits. So with one qubit, you can represent two states at the same time. With 10 qubits, you can represent a thousand states, two raised to 10 at the same time. So there's this exponential trajectory where with 53 qubits, let's say, you can simulate an extraordinary large number of possibilities uh, for some practical problem of interest. And the reason I bring up 53 qubits is that this was the milestone that you may have seen in the news last, uh, actually now 2019, where Google launched this device that has 53 qubits and it can perform a task with this sort of superposition uh, two raised to 53 outcomes that no traditional computer in the world, even a supercomputer, can do in less than a few weeks. So what Google's machine with 53 qubits can do in 300 seconds, you would need the world's biggest supercomputer out in Tennessee running for something like a few weeks to even get close to that result. Uh, now that's all very exciting, but the catch right now is that Google's supercomputer, quantum computer, is solving a very sort of contrived and useless problem. So the next few years, let's say a decade, is really about taking these capabilities of quantum computers and putting them to good use. So the two areas that get the most funding are basically one is that you can use a quantum computer to simulate molecules and atoms. And so you can imagine that in the future, uh, now this is still very far off, but you can imagine say in 20 years, vaccine development, which currently happens in a lab, in a wet lab, could happen computationally in a quantum computer. It can model all the interactions of electrons and so forth. Um, now that's one dimension. And the other one that I'll just mention is the reason that, to be frank, we get a lot of funding in the world of quantum computing is that it turns out that the same superposition that gives rise to this exponential potential speed up lets you factor very large numbers. And there, that sounds kind of boring and mathematical, but the very practical application of that is that if you had a quantum computer big enough to factor big numbers, you could break encryption like RSA. Uh, so anytime you've gone on amazon.com and see that padlock at the top left telling you that you're doing secured shopping, that would be broken by a quantum computer. Maybe that's a little benign, but imagine that all the diplomatic cables between the US and its allies or between uh, say countries that are not so friendly with the US and each other 
those could be just easily broken by a quantum computer in the future. And that's why the Defense Department, the NSA is investing a lot of resources in ensuring that the US is not the second country to get a quantum computer. We want to be the first country that has a quantum computer. Well, I was going to ask you about the benefits of quantum computing. One is, you know, processing speed, but it sounds like the negative of, you know, being able to break encryption, or I say encryption is actually a lot bigger of a problem. What yeah, is- that's true. There's there's both offense and defense and a lot of things with quantum computing. Now, the saving grace is that it is really a big problem that quantum computers will one day break a lot of encryption. But there's this other technology that's related to quantum computing, but a little different, called quantum cryptography. And it turns out that this technology is completely unbreakable, provably secure. So right now in Chicago, actually, there's a lot of infrastructure. The U.S. government is investing in something called the quantum Internet, which will basically allow in the future banks and uh, embassies between uh, different countries to communicate entirely securely. So I think a lot of times with quantum, you get both some bad outcome, but then some good outcome that will replace it in the future. One follow up question, Pranav, for you is you know, your company, Supertech. You call it a game changer. So I'd like to ask you what you're doing at Supertech. Can you talk about what's game changing about Supertech and then why did you go on this path of entrepreneurism? Yeah, sure. So I think the conventional wisdom in quantum computing is to do the same thing that people have done for decades for normal computing, like making your iPhone or making your laptop, but just make it quantum. And that is a very appealing way to build a quantum computer, the software stack because it's so familiar, like the same way that Python programmers today don't need to worry about the device physics, their uh, transistors. That sounds like a really good thing. And that's sort of the prevailing sentiment around how people build quantum computers and their software. The thing that we're doing very differently and we like to think of as a game changer is that we're sort of turning that logic on its head because it is very nice if your quantum computing software looks very similar to your normal computing software, but it comes at a cost, which is that we have to keep in mind that today's software for normal computers is very different than software, how it looked 40, 50 years ago. And the reason for that is that today we have the luxury of having very big computers with billions of bits and very fast processing speeds. So this computing stack that we're building is more inspired by computing stacks from the 1950s and the 1960s than from the computing stacks that power your phone or your laptop today. And as an example of that, it means that the person who's doing the programming actually has full visibility into the physics of the computer, which again, if you're writing a Python program or something, you never have visibility into the transistor. That's something you don't want. But in the case of quantum computing, where we're so resource constrained, we don't have a gigabyte, we have 50 little qubits we really need to leverage as much um, knowledge of the underlying physics as we can. And we find that that gives us 100x speedups and 100x efficiency gains. And that's important because today we're so resource constrained with quantum computers that if we can make the software virtualize the underlying machine as if it's 10 times better, it's sort of like having next generation of hardware, but today. And I think that actually ties to the next question of, why we decided to build out this company. So we are very friendly with companies like IBM. uh, And in fact, we're one of their partners and I have nothing but nice things to say about a lot of these companies. At the same time, we find that at the big companies, their software stacks for a variety of reasons 
some of them organizational, some of them the fact that their computer scientists sit in one room and the physicists sit uh, on another continent sometimes. There just isn't enough interaction between those teams to build the kind of software stack that we envision. And in fact, what I described as that sort of conventional stack is exactly what IBM, Google, et cetera, are building. And it works in terms of helping people get onboarded into quantum computing. But if you really want to get as much mileage as you can from the underlying hardware, we think that we need a stack that's more unified, if you will. And we sort of just decided to spin out this company because we had this research about what I've described. So we licensed it through the university's IP department because we thought that big companies could license it, but if they did, it would just sit on a shelf for a couple of years before they figured out what to do with it. Whereas we invented it, we knew exactly what to do with it. So that was the sort of bug that drove us into, hey, we should actually commercialize our own technology instead of waiting for one of the big companies to commercialize our technology and do it slowly and uh, worst job at it. So that's interesting. So do, do you actually own the patent? That was a question I had for you and for Jeff. You know, students today are doing research at universities. Who who owns that patent? Is it the University of Chicago or is it you? So actually, maybe this is a good point for Jeff, but my quick answer is that as a student, we went through the university's office to have them file it on our behalf and it's owned by the university, but then we have licensed it from them. And as far as I know, this is a common practice that maybe Jeff can. Speak yeah, yeah, this is this is absolutely super, super common practice, Pranav and Samantha. Um, universities develop technologies all the time. I work with a lot of universities. And as it turns out, if you are a grad student or a postdoc or a professor, you're an employee of that university. If you are an undergraduate, different classification, typically undergrads will own their IPs. Well, that brings me to a question about open sourcing, because, you know, Elon Musk, one of the greatest innovators of our time, decided to open source his technology for Hyperloop. He wrote a white paper back in 2013 where he outlined the specs for uh, Hyperloop. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there are several companies, including Virgin Hyperloop, that are competing to develop the best Hyperloop system. So mm -hmm. Musk could have kept, kept all of this secret. He could have filed a patent, kept all the proceeds to himself but he chose to forsake profits to create better products. Is this something you, he, you only do because you're a billionaire and you don't need to make money from your invention like Musk? Or are there other reasons that you would decide to open source your technology versus patented? And this is a question for both of you. When it comes to new technologies and startup companies, the, the thing that you need to develop it is funding. And the patents are nothing more than a way to de-risk the risk to your investors. If I'm going to write you a check for $50 million for you to start your company, I'm a rich guy, let's say, I'm not, but let's say, okay, I want to make sure that, that nobody's going to copy it or steal it from you. And so I want to make sure that your IP is locked down, that, that people aren't just going to copy it because people copy it, then all of a sudden my $50 million investment isn't be worth too much. So that's one of the reasons why the, uh, there is the IP system. It's actually written in the US constitution. It's to encourage the development of technologies because for the most part, you're not gonna be able to get that investment if, if it's very risky. Nobody's gonna wanna do that. Drug companies are the same way, okay? It takes a billion dollars these days to fully develop a drug. Patent system is super important to the pharmaceutical and the biotechnology industries because they have to invest so much. At the end, after 10, 15 years of development, they want to be able to see, at least get a profitable stream of revenue to basically pay for and substantiate that investment. Elon Musk 
Hyperloop is completely different. It's his money. He wanted to take the risk. He wanted to keep it open. And so, yeah, he decided to do it that way. We've also struggled with this decision quite a bit of whether to go core open source and everything we're doing slightly open source or totally closed. And along some of these same lines, the trade-offs can vary a lot by industry. So reasons that we have thought about going very open source friendly, it tends to be things like publicity and recruiting. And you can imagine that Elon Musk portraying this vision of uh, here, take my patents actually is really good for from that standpoint. Um, but it does have a cost in our field, which is that we spend a lot of time developing the software and we don't necessarily want our competitors in this very uh, early industry to just eat our lunch by taking our own software and selling it. So for that reason, right now, our decision is to be mostly closed. Another pro out of open source that we're thinking about and keeps us always on the fence is if there's other open source things out there, then it kind of sometimes forces our hand because if we want to get customer adoption, then customers will look at this other solution and think that, oh, I might as well just go with this. It's already open. So that can be another trade-off. And then you have to figure out ways to make money off the open source, which can still be done very successfully, but it just requires some thought. How do you have a support business model or sort of a pre premium business model? But it gets a little hairy. I do think that the Elon Musk case is a little different than say, early entrepreneurs like myself. It's rare, actually, it's very rare. Entrepreneurs will struggle to, to raise the first million dollars. And everybody who is willing to, the angel investors out there, you know, they're angel investors because they want to see a 10x return in three years. That's what they're looking for. So they, they usually require, okay, what is your IP strategy? Did you file? They want to make sure you own it, you control it. It doesn't belong to somebody else and you're not walking them into a lawsuit. And so the IP strategy, intellectual property, it helps you to protect what you're developing, what you're innovating. But at the same time, it also helps to make sure that you're not, you know, walking into a landmine, that you're not accidentally stealing somebody else's technology. Sometimes people do that intentionally, and that's a business decision. It's a risk. You say, do we want to go? You know, if I took a look at Pranav's uh, patent from the University of Chicago, and I say, ha, 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 I know exactly what he's doing, and I'm going to build a company. I'm going to do almost exactly what he's doing, and uh, maybe leave out a critical feature of the patent, and hopefully I'll be able to compete against uh, Pranav. People, you know, if Pranav is successful, people will do that. And I say that's actually a good problem to have because that shows that Pranav is successful in his enterprise. So it's a mixed bag. But I'd say generally, you want to keep an eye on these things. You certainly don't want to go into it blind. You should certainly, uh, you know, check, talk, uh, you know, with, with somebody who knows something about IP. So quantum computing is one of those, you know, Jeff, you're talking about robotics and augmented reality and how these are like technologies of the future. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think of quantum computing also as a technology of the future. So how do you raise money on something that's not commercialized? And then a second part of that question is, what do you foresee to be the, the, the first commercialized applications of quantum computing? Sure. Yeah. We were fortunate to encounter investors who were very future oriented. And this is for our pre-seed round. So we raised from actually the University of Chicago and then a few alum of University of Chicago who reached out to us after hearing about our initial raise. And I think what's common about these investors is that they're comfortable with sort of deep tech companies, what you could call disruptive engineering, where they're not expecting to see payoffs 
in the next three, four years. Though, I don't know if folks have been following, there's been a recent SPAC IPO of one of the big quantum startups out there called IonQ. They went public for $2 billion. So now actually the dynamics have changed quite a bit in the last three weeks because now there is potential to actually go public fairly early. That being said, just to rewind to our investors, we found investors who felt that this is a technology that today is very much in a research stage, but they agreed that we will be able to certainly stay alive baseline because of government funding for a lot of this technology. And there's a big potential upside in a few years when it does become commercialized. It's always a timing question. Like I think someone could have spoken these same words that I'm speaking five years ago, and that would have been too early. And perhaps now is too late. It's always impossible to know that. But I do think that we conveyed to the investors that we had a clear vision of what we could do with the hardware projections that were coming out of IBM, Google, other companies that were building hardware. So I think our investors were comfortable with uncertainty as long as it was not chaos. There was some plan of how we would adapt to changing hardware conditions, changing market conditions, things like that. Uh, as to where those first applications are going to be, we think that broadly quantum computers are going to be good in two sets of categories in the early stages. The first is for problems that are inherently quantum mechanical. So finding the ground state energy of a molecule like caffeine, let's say, is something that's very, very difficult computation. It would take years, if not decades, to solve that problem on the world's biggest supercomputer. But a quantum computer is very well adapted to the same parts that make it hard on a normal computer, make it easy on a quantum computer. And that is the fact that electrons are these quantum mechanical objects. You might as well use another quantum mechanical object to simulate the electrons. And so things like that, uh, one very exciting, uh, I think positive humanitarian outcome of quantum computing is gonna be producing better fertilizer. So right now, fertilizer production is done with the same process that you learned about in your middle school chemistry class, the Bosch-Haber process. And it actually takes 2% of the world's entire energy expenditures. If we could optimize that computationally, that could literally reduce the world's climate uh, energy expenditure by a significant fraction. So that's one category. And then I think the other category is what I'll call small but hard data. To be contrasted with big data, quantum computers are not so good in their early stages for big data because we don't have enough qubits to store all the data. But there are other problems like, say, picking stocks in a portfolio where every stock, even if you only have 50 stocks and you want to decide buy or sell, buy or sell for each one, that's two raised to 50 combinations. And that's the kind of small data set, but exponential explosion of combinations where we think that quantum computers are going to have a near-term impact. And Jeb, what are you seeing? Any momentum over in, in your area of law with um, with quantum? Well, momentum sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there's new devices that are being developed. Uh, actually do work for Princeton University. And uh, out of the physics department, uh, they're developing, um, if you will, the, the, the subcomponents, the uh, uh, transistor like the qubits uh, out of some exotic materials. And so it's really interesting, but uh, to go from it like the, an original innovation or discovery in the lab to actually a useful technology, there's typically a 30 year gap. If you look at the discovery of the transistor to when transistors were everywhere, 
it really took around 25, 30 years to go from the beginning to where it was. And we're seeing the same thing. I think I had mentioned, you know, the, the concepts about quantum computing have been around, I don't know, Pranav, since I'm going to guess at least the 90s. Even the 80s, actually. <laughs> you know, theoretically thinking about it, and we're just starting to see it, it come out. There's a lot of interesting, you know, just the development of material science. You know, you lay down all different kinds of exotic materials to create qubits and how to do superpositioning and how to use photons to adjust what's going on. Really cool stuff. You know, it's like a playground. If the scientists who work in the lab and they're able to manipulate at the nano scale different kinds of materials based upon theory to, to, to guide them, uh, they're making some really cool, cool structures. And we're getting patents on it. The thing is, patents only last for about 20 years. And so I hope that, uh, you know, the, the useful technologies, you know, will, will actually become commercial before then. I go back and I said, uh, there is this postdoc that developed the technology for looking at full genomic linked DNA on a microscope slide. That was 20 years ago, and the patents are just about to run out, but they've made improvements along the way. So yeah, you have the original idea, the original patent, but it may be that the commercial value comes out of the later patents. So quantum computing, it's still, I would say, still there's a lot of innovation going on. There's always going to be new patents. You know, as far as quantum encryption, big deal. Quantum encryption, uh, so you can't break the blockchain with quantum, big deal. And uh, I've been working on those technologies as well. Very cool stuff. Well, I'm glad you brought up blockchain because you know we talked about open source. Yep. And blockchain actually started as an open source technology within the developer community. And software developers pride themselves on sharing information. But now the block, blockchain technology is becoming more mainstream. We're seeing big companies like Bank of America, MasterCard, even UPS filing applications that are, you know, for, for patents that will last for 20 years. So mm -hmm. is this like rush to patent technology around blockchain? Is this going to stifle growth and innovation in this area oh, because no. it's creating? No. 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 Explain the to patents me. Patents don't stifle growth at all. Patents mm -hmm. encourage, encourage investment. And when it comes to, you know, infringing and being stopped by a patent, that's a really hard thing to do. I mean, they, yeah, there are patent litigation lawsuits. They happen all the time. You know, half of what my law firm does is, or at least in the IP group, is patent litigation. And it usually happens much, much, much later in the commercialization curve. I mean, there's this uh, either the hockey stick curve or the S model where it takes a long time to develop, then it's growth. And then usually the patent litigation usually happens towards the end of the growth. So I don't see it stifling innovation at all. In your view, Pranav and Jeff, what does it mean to be disruptive? Can one person, an engineer or an entrepreneur be disruptive or does it take a bigger ecosystem of players to build something innovative? The disruption happens when somebody creative has a fantastic idea. So I mentioned uh, the postdoc at Princeton. He had the idea of, how do you make genomic DNA visible? That was, I'd say, you have to have the, the initial idea. Um, my roboticist, how to make an, an, an artificial muscle fiber that's disruptive. My father-in-law, 30 years ago, passed away uh, 10 years ago. He had the disruptive idea of how to get lots of data on copper wire telephone wires, which led to the invention of DSL. And he's in the uh, U.S. Patent Inventors Hall of Fame for that. He had the, the, the idea as, you know, understanding the math and said, well, this could work. So I really, 
individuals can be disruptive engineers, but then you have to sell it, you have to build it, and you have to get teams to actually commercialize it and make it happen. But I would recommend a partner to help you to promote and do the building. So you may have a, a, a tech genius involved, um, but maybe that tech genius should be uh, partnered with a business genius or somebody who is experienced to help to sell and build companies. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything Jeff said. And uh, I think one comment that I'll add is that disruptive ideas and disruptive engineering, one thing that's difficult is that it can share a lot in common with ideas that are no good <laughs> in the sense that people, when you have a disruptive idea, won't agree with it. It's not a disruptive engineering achievement is not one that everyone you meet is going to be like, that's awesome, go do this. And when I think back 10 years ago, the idea of Tesla becoming this gigantic company that and electric cars becoming a thing of the future was so absurd because all they had was this little tiny roadster thing. And it was just the laughing stock of big automakers is like, this is such a bad idea. This is never going to work. The US just does gas and maybe sometimes diesel. And of course, I think perhaps for the students in this class right now, you almost might have the opposite perspective that, wow, it's so obvious that electrical cars is the way to go. And so I think that can be a big piece of disruptive engineering is that one has to keep going at it, even when you know that there's going to be people who think it's the worst idea they've ever heard. And that's what's difficult because there's also bad ideas that should not actually get funded and should not be worked on. Uh, and so how do you know that you're building one of the good disruptive ideas that'll actually become say a new industry versus just some bad idea? Um, and I think part of the answer to that, that Jeff and I, when we spoke earlier that Jeff uh, mentioned is having passion is probably the best way to describe it. It's very difficult to be committed to a field of say research or technology engineering, where there's going to be a lot of naysayers out there. And really passion is the only way to get through building what you want to do and have a vision that you can actually execute. Well, we spoke about that last week when we were talking about the whole concept of what is disruption and with a uh, professor Iklak Sidhu at, at UC Berkeley. And he was mentioning some of the attributes and the characteristics that it takes to be innovative. And that was one of them was persistence was a really big one. But you know, being willing to, to fail and continue and to be so passionate that you're willing to get a lot of no's before you get that, that one yes that may keep you going forward. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram at Lehigh Nasdaq Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast with Jeff and Pranav as much as I did, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Join us next week as I speak with Tom Chavez, the co-founder and CEO of Catch and the co-founder and general partner of Superset to discuss his impressive career and how he uses data, decision science, and artificial intelligence to solve challenging problems.